In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. These metaphors to speak of God. God is like this, God is like that. Lord is my shepherd, so to speak. My favorite metaphor for God is author. Metaphors are loose analogies. As J.K. Rowling is to the world of Harry Potter, so is God to the world of J.K. Rowling. In the Bible, maybe the most frequent metaphor for God is king, a ruler. As David was to Israel, so is God to the entire creation. Our colic today begins, Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. The truth of this is not self-evident, not obvious. If it were, this place would be full every Sunday morning. In our Old Testament reading, an explanation of sorts is given for the non-obviousness of God. At a moment when God became obvious, the story had been told, the people couldn't bear it, so God went back to undercover. Moses reminds the congregation of this incident. This is what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb, when you said, If I hear the voice of the Lord any more or ever again see this great fire, I will die. So in lieu of direct encounters, God sends prophets whom people can take with a grain of salt if they so choose. Kierkegaard had a somewhat different explanation. He believed that it was always God's design to hide behind a veil of uncertainty. God is omnipresent everywhere. Kierkegaard reasoned that if God were visible, life would feel as though there were a cop on every corner and a preacher in every bedroom. God cloaks his presence and his power for the sake of freedom. Bart agreed with Kierkegaard. Wait a minute. He did agree with Kierkegaard, but I hadn't got to that part yet. No, according to Bart, God's rule of nature and of history is directed to a goal. The goal is a covenant of grace through which God appeals in grace to nothing more than our sense of responsibility and our love. But that's, that's the method, that's, that's the tactic that God uses. And that's what we're doing here this morning, answering God's appeal to our responsibility and our love. We are saying yes to that appeal. Christ is the culmination of this strategy. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, John said, but the world knew him not. So in Christ, God is fully present, but he's still cloaked to a degree. Ever since I was in seminary, I've read books that said that that was John, the author of the fourth gospel's idea, that the early Christianity had a simpler view of who Jesus was 
and that John, who was the last gospel writer to write, magnified that, kind of equating Christ with God and developing this doctrine of the incarnation that Christ is God present in the world in a human being. That's just not a good reading of the New Testament. Even the earliest gospels, they have a different way of saying it than John, but they are making the same point. And Paul, whose writings are the earliest uh, writings that we have in the New Testament, or very close to the time of Jesus, says in this morning's reading that we just read, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That kind of parallelism runs through the Bible, and it always is, it means to identify the two, thing, the two points that are being juxtaposed. So, from Paul to John, using my analogy, it is as though J.K. Rowling had written herself into the world of witches, wizards, elves, and muggles, making an appeal to their responsibility through love. And perhaps in the person of Harry Potter, that's exactly what she was doing. Switching back to scripture, one of the themes of Mark's gospel is what scholars call the messianic secret. The truth about God keeps peeking out from beyond the veil in the ministry of Jesus, and people keep blurting out that, oh, he's the God's anointed. And Jesus keeps telling them to be quiet, not correcting them, just telling them to be quiet about it. In our vignette from this morning's gospel reading, the, the witness is a demon. The demon says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? But Jesus rebuked him, be silent. But then Jesus healed the man. And God's presence in Jesus in that action, which was typical, while still veiled, was so powerful and manifest that almost despite himself, he stirred up excitement. And he did appeal to people's sense of responsibility, but even more to their love. They loved what they were seeing. They loved what they knew of God and what they were seeing. And so the fame of him spread. Bart believed that the miracles of Jesus were strategic. They were a sample of God's rule made manifest. Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. But lest there be any confusion that this was just an announcement, it was just a word, by his actions he showed it. Bart says, in the activity of Jesus, it was as it were, the, the activity of Jesus was as it were the kindling light of his speech. The light of the truth of his speech kindling into actuality, like a fire. In the miracles of Jesus, there is the doing of the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. God wasn't all that cloaked sometimes. So our faith blends poetry and history. We use metaphors to speak of God, and there's poetry in that. But the metaphors are not figments of our imagination. They're attempts to describe the reality of God, the kingdom, so to speak. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us the kingdom of God is not an ideal that we must build. It is a reality in which we may participate. Which brings me to my subject, which is churches generally, and more specifically, this cathedral. Today it was the fifth annual meeting of my tenure here, which is three more than either you or I had bargained for. Under the United States Constitution, church is an optional commitment. Work, school, tax paying, and law obeying are required commitments. Legally, church is like playing golf or belonging to the garden club. It's also done to taste. Some like it hot, with weeping and wailing in the Holy Ghost. Some like it hard, strict, conservative. Some like it loose and liberal. You can take it or leave it and have it how you like it. That's religion in America. It's religion in a world where, by design, God is cloaked within a veil. What Moses said about the prophets can be said of churches now. I'm going to take and rephrase and paraphrase what Moses said about, char- about prophets and apply them to us. I will raise up for them a church like, like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of their preachers, leaders, singers, and the people in the pew who shall speak to them everything that I command. My first Sunday here, I said, picking up on a reading from Isaiah, that God has called us to be a light in Little Rock. Last fall, we set up a Sunday morning listening exercise to collectively identify our core values. As the consultant explained, core values are the why of Trinity Cathedral in Arkansas. They're the foundation of both the cathedral's missional identity and vision. The way I think about it is that they are what we love about ourselves when we're at our best. So we asked you to tell us that. I do a lot of talking from up here, but we have it a day where we listen while you did the talking. We took your answers to a set of questions, and we put them in a committee pipe and inhaled and blew out these six smoke rings as distillations of your answers. Beautiful worship in the Anglican tradition in an atmosphere that feels welcoming and warm. Caring community that values diverse people, perspectives, and ideas. Spiritual formation for all ages, lively programs and attractive spaces that open pathways deeper into faith, hope, and love through common study, prayer, and action. Artistic expression through glorious music, inspiring spaces, colorful and fragrant fragrant flourishes and memorable performances. Couldn't have a nicer example of a flourish than the bells sending the, the gospel back to the altar. Community engagement. Strong partnerships with other groups and churches for the vitality of Little Rock and the common good. And the last one is perhaps a bit more aspirational. 
cathedral identity as a beacon of faith in Little Rock, we are that, and a source of vitality and strength in worship, community, formation, expression, and engagement for the Episcopal Church throughout Arkansas so that other churches in Van Buren, Fort Smith, and Crossett, and Mountain Home can come to us, learn from us, and have their own life and vitality enriched through their cathedral. So, beautiful worship, caring community, spiritual formation, artistic expression, community engagement, and cathedral identity. I think that sounds like us, both as a description and as an aspiration. It invites us to think of ways to become more and more our best self. In the Bible, no two prophets are identical. Amos isn't Jeremiah and Isaiah isn't Moses. And we're not the Fellowship Bible Church or St. Mark's, St. Michael's, or St. Margaret's. Like the prophets, churches all have our weaknesses and strengths, our vision and our blind spots. But our values are real, and they're important because they are openings into the reality of God. These core values are a way of seeing through the veil and living in the truth about ourselves, the world, and God. We are stronger than we were four years ago. Sunday attendance leveled off last year, just a slight increase, but it's almost double what it had been. It's maybe a slight exaggeration, but not a big one. Not everything that we've tried has worked, but we've experienced gloriously glorious successes. Profound, beautiful, moving, and important work is done here on a daily basis. We are alike in Little Rock and we are brightly shining.